Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast about JavaScript and other things. I'm your host, Khalil, and this is episode 16. Feel free to argue about services. Today's guest is Rachel Myers. She is a programmer interested in social social justice. <laughs> she was a speaker at the Passion Projects. Uh, she's involved in Rails Bridge and works at GitHub. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks. Glad to be here. Um, how did you How did you get into programming? Um, I didn't study it in college. I learned to program after after grad school. I uh, I was one of I was one of those people that um, couldn't did I went to college not really knowing like what career I would have and it was after college that I sat down and looked around at the world and um, I was looking for something that was creative and intellectually demanding and collaborative and programming has been um, a really great fit for me. Cool. So uh, so so you. I don't know if that answers your question though. Yeah. So. I'm interested in, so how did you find out basically that you are interested in? in oh, okay. So um, I guess in 2008, someone handed me, or they didn't really hand me, they sent me a link to Wise Poignant Guide. Um, it's, a, it's a fun cartoonish uh, introduction to Ruby. Um, and, and I read through that and that has little examples that you can do. So I did those and it didn't seem like real programming. It seemed like... Uh, it's all the examples were funny. And so mm -hmm. it seemed like fake programming. Like, uh, I think at one point <laughs> you make a star monkey. And, and so I, you know, I, I had an editor and I was like making star monkeys and my programs were ready. And I was like, cool, my computer is doing something. I have no idea how this applies to like a real world. Like, like, how do you do something useful with this? Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really know what it meant to create like star monkey right like they were teaching us stories like they were teaching us about inheritance and um and that was cool we were learning about behavior but that didn't really tell me about how to do anything useful mm -hmm. so i so i it was study groups eventually and and working through more like more serious uh computer science books that like kind of gave me so like gave me a more well-rounded education but like the way that i first um came to programming was through this like comp this silly comic book style um book mm -hmm. Why guide? yeah that's that's a cool guide i think i um i stumbled over it a while ago like years ago or something and i started reading it too it's uh it's uh it's it's really fun it's it's just for free online right yeah the yeah guide um so what did you actually study for then um philosophy i have i have uh I have a philosophy degree and then I got my master's and did my thesis in the philosophy of color. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any follow-up questions to that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of well, I, actually, actually, yeah. So, so you said, so basically you had that, that, that master's and then, and then you, was it, so when did you, so when did you find that or, or was it, so when were you introduced uh, to program? Was that during your studies or was it after that or how did it that work? It was almost immediately after because okay. uh, I, I needed to find, I, I declined to um, follow up with a PhD. So I got my master's and I, I could kind of like do the math and see how many philosophy PhDs we were producing every year versus how many new jobs there were for 
four philosophy PhDs and I, mm-hmm. um, I could kind of see that wasn't really a career path, mm-hmm. um, or not a smart career path, I guess. Uh, so I decided to leave academia and then I had to find something to do. Um, so yeah. I was kind of, I was struggling. I was like, I was trying to like get teaching jobs and a friend showed me like, it was actually, um, a friend who was working on refactoring, uh, a little, a little Sinatra app that he had. Um, and, and I was, I was like helping out with like one little thing and he was like, I think you could do this. And so he introduced me to wise poignant guide. Oh, okay. So suggestions from a friend, I guess. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you, so you read that guide and then how did you follow up on that? Did you, um, try to, to teach yourself programming online or how did that work? Well, there weren't a lot of, uh, so like there weren't a lot of Ruby resources available online. There are now, there are a ton of things available now. Yeah. Um, but at the time there weren't, or at least I didn't know about them. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I ran, so I went to a rails bridge workshop, which I continue to be involved with um, Mm -hmm. today. And, it was, it was a really interesting experience because I had been reading books. I started with Wise Point Guide, then I found like pickaxe or whatever. And I started learning like other, like just learning from books from like in, from, from, uh, you know, text. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't give you much feedback. Like I, I didn't know how much I knew or what I didn't know. I didn't have any like, uh, oh, you're, you're progressing kind of like feedback coming in. So mm-hmm. going to a workshop was this really interesting experience of, well, like I, uh, I said, oh, I'm a total beginner. I don't know anything. So they put me in the very beginner class. Um, and I was the most annoying student. So someone would say, what's a rake task? And I had read what a rake task was. So I was like, oh, my God, it's Ruby make, which is like kind of a weird thing. That's not like you don't really need a make file for um, for Ruby. So it's weird that we say that. But anyway, that was that was like the the um, by the book answer at the time. And so I would say, oh, my God, it's, it's Ruby Make. And they're like, what is a Make file? And I could tell them about that. And so, like, it was the first bit of feedback about how much I knew and what I didn't know. Like, I didn't know about testing, right? So, so that, like, I could, I could see, like, where there were gaps and where, oh, I could feel accomplished about this thing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm, that was, like, yeah, cool. So, like, workshops and then study groups where you get to, like, talk to people and do a real thing. That was, um, that was great for me. Yeah. And and then and then I I guess you you started looking for for jobs maybe as a junior programmer or how did that work? Um, the first thing I did was I convinced a consulting company to interview me and uh, and then hire me for free. So I I was doing work um, for clients. How that, did you convince like, them? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, the free had a lot to do with it. <laughs> so, so, um, I, like I, I joke about, it, but they were paying, like they were paying something. They were like, they were spending their time, um, giving right. me feedback and like including me in the projects and like getting me up to speed on things. And they, they got something out of it. They got, these were the things that I worked on for them were like the legacy projects that weren't making them a lot of money, but they did have to like continue to like work on. And that was really, uh, that was like a great step in, my education because I didn't um 
I didn't really know what the process of like web development was like until mm -hmm. I started doing that. And then I was suddenly working with a designer and I had to, and I had stakeholders mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had gripey grouchy stakeholders, which is like a really great education <laughs> for web development. So, um, so working like working on kind of like it was it was work that was not really um, that other people didn't really want to do. But to me, these problems were hard to me. These problems like I didn't know how to do them. And so it was uh, right. it was a nice combination, I think, like I and I was happy to have the work and they were happy to not have work. Mm -hmm. um, so that was like that was my first quote unquote job. And after I did that for a little while, I had a, I knew enough to go get a real job. And what kind of projects did you do there then exactly? What kind of, uh, yeah. Um, so working, so there was a CMS that they had developed for a client and um, that needed to be maintained uh, and brought up to date. It was, it was pretty old. So um, I got to work on a Ruby CMS and mm. like write, write some cool like Well, to me, it was cool, right? It's like, I look back on it, I was like, oh, that was a very easy project. But at the time, it was <laughs> the hardest thing I'd ever done, right? Yeah. So, um, so, so you, I got, got trade extensions and things for that. Sorry, go ahead. Um, sorry. But, um, yeah, so I'm wondering, so were you specifically looking for an agency or was it an agency, actually? Did you say that? Yeah, or, a consultancy. Yeah, consultancy. A small, a, a very small consulting yeah. company. Yeah. So, were you um, spe specifically looking for for Ruby for Ruby agency or consultancy? You yeah, know? they they did um, Ruby. They also they were they were a little bit more broad in like in projects they would take on. So they took on a lot of web development. But they would also take on iOS apps, mm -hmm. um, and so so I got to see some of that. Oh, cool. I didn't do that. Yeah. So where did you go from there? Uh, then I worked at ModCloth. Um, ModCloth is uh, an online retailer that specializes in um, kind of retro clothing, hmm. and uh, and that was that was a great experience. It was a very small development team when I joined, uh, and we got to grow the team, grow the project, um, get like bring bring the project up to date. So that was so that was, like um, um, bring it to up to date with like up to date technology or or like the new versions or what do you mean by that? Yeah, just just uh, it was so it was a five year old code base when I started and it, it had like the um, the signs of an old legacy project. Mm -hmm. So trying to like um, so there were there were a lot of features that were missing. It was like things that you would consider standard for. Um, an e-commerce site and so we got to build out a lot of like search like filtering um sorting a lot of a lot of that stuff was either so poorly implemented that um it just wasn't really functional or wasn't implemented at all hmm. so that was that was a really great um time to try things out we also we also got to like try to re-architect the app while it's you know in motion and moving so there were a lot of there were a lot of cool projects that we got to do at monocloth Mm. So what, and was that a Ruby shop that or a Rails thing that was built from yeah. from the ground up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. it was it was a Rails project. I know, like today, I think if people were building out an e-commerce site, there's there's a little bit more to like build on. But when they started it, um, I can't quite. I want to say that they started that Rails app in like 2007 or so. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so back then, I don't think they had as much to start with. So there, so it was all hand rolled, and okay. and you could see, you could see like some of the, <laughs> I, I some can of imagine. The yeah. Yeah. So what was the what was the most most important thing that you took away from there, like the coolest thing you learned? <sighs> so I give a lot of conference talks, and all of my conference talks are on the theme of like mistakes that I've made that like I thought were really great ideas at the time, and they turned out to not be great ideas. Mm. Um, it's just it's like that that those learning experiences that have been valuable for me, I think are probably useful for other people too. Mm -hmm. And those are just the talks that I kind of enjoy listening to. Um, and, and I feel like a lot of the, like a lot of things that I get to talk about, I get to talk about from like mod cloth days because at the time I was like me and my team, everyone, we were, we were all making like the very best decisions, but we were, we were operating with like limited information or with like hopes rather than like facts. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so so we uh so there have been there are a lot of things that i take away from modcloth as like seem like a good idea i don't think it's a good idea anymore and like those like keep coming like uh like um even today i'll i'll think about how to do something like oh i tried it once that way let's not do that again so um, so, what, so what is an example of that so um so i think so coded would would like uh would like to get a mention in here, and I think this is a perfect one. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so I'm I'm gonna speak it so coded, and that talk is going to be about service oriented architecture. I think um, service oriented architecture has been widely misunderstood as kind of the solution to anything that could possibly be wrong with a web application. Mm -hmm. And so so uh, I've I've heard talks about um, about building out services in place of um, refactoring your code in case of like having to optimize, optimize like specific, like get down into the nitty gritty parts of your app and find out what's actually wrong with your application. Hmm. Um, and so instead of doing that, people will build out services. And so this talk is built on like mistakes that I've made, not, not any one particular mistake. It's, it's like kind of a collection of service oriented architecture mistakes mm -hmm. that I've made. Um, where I thought that I would solve a problem using services, and what I actually did was complicate problems. So, so um, that's one that's one big takeaway that I that I come out of ModCloth with. Okay. We thought that we would solve problems with services, and we made those problems worse. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very sad. And would you would you solve the same problems? Maybe uh, with services, but differently, or would you just not use services? Well, today? the thing that I kind of conclude now is that there are use cases for services, but they're specific. So, um, so I don't think the use case for services is I have a big application. Like that's not what tells me that I need services. Mm -hmm. What tells me that I need services um, is something like uh, a use case would be if I have code that needs to run in multiple places, for example, um, that might be a good, a good use case for a service. Uh, if I have, if I have code that has dramatically different uptime requirements, that would be a good use case for a service. Mm -hmm. Something, something where the infrastructure could be handled very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, what, uh, what I see as a very common pattern in services and, um, and feel free to push back on this. Cause I know that services enjoy a lot of popularity right now. So, 
so I, I think people probably would like to push back on this. Um, I, I think uh, one, one way that um, I think people probably see services as like, they probably see the use case as like, uh, I, I, I want to isolate one section of my code so that it can be clearly understood. And, um, and maybe this is for organizational reasons so that one team can kind of own that code base. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem there is, um, if you if you think about like a request, you 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 would be able to make one request to one server, um, and that's one set of infrastructure that is going to be maintained. So like your front ends and your database clusters or whatever, and so you could you could get in that line, wait for that request, um, and then you get it back. Or if you have services, then you could um, make one request, which will then call out to a servers, uh, call out to a service, and maybe you have like three or four services involved in that. So you have to like wait for all of those responses, and you have to maintain all that infrastructure. So, so instead of like uh, building out one one cluster of databases, you have like three or four suddenly. Mm -hmm. And it, in order to just like maintain the same performance, you're maintaining a lot more uh, mm -hmm. infrastructure. So that's so like that that kind of like detail is not what we were thinking about, and that's what we ended up like facing after a little while. Okay. Uh yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> I mean, I don't really have a lot of experiences with uh, with services. I just uh, a colleague of mine is 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 really into microservices and um, yeah, yeah, just researching it and finding out stuff and and basically seeing, trying to figure out where where this works really well. And um, what I found interesting about this whole microservices th thing is um, the fact that redundancy is is allowed. So mm -hmm. meaning that if you have, if one request goes to a server and uh, to a service and this service basically uh, needs, for instance, uh, specific information about users very, very often or every time, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a request goes out to this uh, service, then basically it can, it can have its own database with that information just on that server and that yeah, on, on that server where that service is running as well. <clears throat> and then you have redundancy, uh, of course, which, you know, like is m mostly regarded as terrible. But uh, in this case, it uh, or in some cases, it can be really useful and make a lot of sense because you right. just you don't have all this communication between the different services all the time. You can reduce that a little bit, which I found interesting. But I think it's uh, all... Everything I heard or um, heard about services basically just told me like you really have to look at your, what your problem is, you know, and mm -hmm. then and and then services or microservices might be a really great solution for that when you do it in the right way, but it could also not. Like it's totally it it's the big it depends answer for me like yeah. there's there's just no there's just no general and you know general problem that you can just throw services at and then it's fine somehow i think that's absolutely right like anytime anytime uh something becomes an ideological answer to things as like i think that's probably not going to be right right like that won't fit all the use cases yeah so pushing mm -hmm. back a little bit on that seems like the right thing to do yeah yeah 
That's that's mostly true. But it, for, for me, it it just became especially clear with this whole microservices thing because it's such an overhead, of course, you know, to run all those services and have different teams running them. And all kind of, and this could be, can be great if you have those teams and yeah, well, but you know, you can get into this thing forever. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so actually. Um, so you already so you already touched on that you're gonna speak at SoCodeConf, which is gonna be uh, in Hamburg, in Germany. Um, I wanted to come back to that uh, a little later. Uh, we kind of uh, trailed off from from the from kind of your path how you got into programming. So I would like to get back to that. Um, so okay, you were sure. yeah. So you were at that. Um, I, I I didn't totally get the name. How do you spell the name of that um, e-commerce company that you were? Um, Modcloth. M O D C L O T H. Ah, Modcloth. Okay. Okay. Cool. So so you were doing that at Modcloth, and um, so where did you go from there? GitHub. GitHub. Oh wow. GitHub. So how did you how did you end up there? Like how how did that work? I have no idea. Um, okay. So well, who knows um, it then? <laughs> I think I think probably it was um, I gave I gave a passion projects talk and that was at the GitHub office. Um, I like I wasn't working at GitHub at the time, so I don't quite know what all the internal mechanisms were. But um, after that, um, someone got in touch with me. They wanted to like have a chat, and so we started talking about uh, about what I would be interested in, what their needs were, how how closely those fit together and um, and then I came in for an interview. So okay, so passion so how did you find out about the passion projects first of all? That was um, that was a surprise. so I hadn't heard about it before I was invited because I was the first one. So um, so Julie, who, who started Passion Projects, uh, got in touch with me. She, we, we had coffee. She said, um, I want to do this. I, I want to like raise up the voices of um, women in technology. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I, like, I, think, I think technology is one of those things where uh, it's, not, it, it's not always easy for women to like be heard it's a, it can be a fairly combative environment mm -hmm. um and so i i really like these initiatives to try to like make it like very explicitly opening open and welcoming space for everyone mm -hmm. um so i was immediately sympathetic i thought she was going to ask me to like help out and she asked me to speak and i was like really i don't know mm -hmm. um but she she convinced me so so i uh I gave a talk about um, how I think about uh, how I was thinking at the time about um, Railsbridge organizing itself. It was at the point in time where Railsbridge was kind of in transition from uh, just a group of ragtag uh, programmers trying to teach other programmers to mm -hmm. becoming a more professional organization and trying to like build in the, and it's an entirely volunteer organization. So trying to build in uh, some mechanisms for people to be able to like move off of projects, move on to projects as their lives like required. Mm -hmm. So it, it was mostly a, an organizational kind of talk. Okay, hold on. My phone yeah. is going off here. That's terrible. Hold on, I got it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. Okay. Um, okay. So, so uh, Julie contacted you 
um, yeah. first. So you didn't know about the passion projects first. Right. Okay. That's true. Okay. So, so she kind of, you, so what was, so what was the, the talk about that you, that you gave there? Um, I talked about how Railsbridge had, um, we were, we were trying to make sure that everyone had the ability to, um, back away from the organization. So if there was, if there was something that, um, people did exclusively, and I was, I was one of those people. So in the Railsbridge organization, there were two founders. They were both named Sarah, Sarah Allen and Sarah May, and they ran it by themselves for the first year. They did all the workshops. And after a year, they were, they were feeling a little burned out. They were, um, they were both moms. They both had full-time jobs. They were busy people. Um, and I was a young programmer that like was, I, I had free time, right? Um, so, so they kind of like handed off some of the, um, organizing stuff to me. And then we got into the place of, uh, I was just doing it all. So, so that, that, that was equally bad, right? That was, that doesn't really solve the problem that just shifted the problem. So we started trying to build in some redundancy. Everyone should, everyone should like have someone else that they work with. Um, and so we called it starfishing. So if you the the name comes from uh, this cool thing that starfish do, and that is uh, if you cut a starfish in half, they will read this. This works for most starfish, not all starfish. And also, no one try this because it seems mean to do to starfish. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> if you if you cut a starfish in half, they will regenerate the arms that they're missing. So you have two starfish, mm -hmm. and this seemed like a good. Uh, a good metaphor for how we wanted to build out the organization. We've since moved away from that pattern. We've tried to become a little bit more um, organized in how we grow, a little more intentional in how we grow. The thing about the starfish model is it relies on someone getting burned out and realizing they need to have a buddy. And so it was very ad hoc growth. Mm -hmm. um, so we, so now we have, so now I'm on the Railsbridge board and we, and we have committees, we create committees, we try to find people that have the time to devote to a specific initiative or project, and we try to grow that out. So it's a lot of meeting with people, seeing what they care about, seeing how that would fit in the organization, finding finding like a team that can work together well, and um, and like helping, like supporting that group so they can like focus on that thing and make it great. So. We, so I, my thinking has changed on how to like how to grow an organization, but at that point in time, like when I gave my passion project, we were starfish. We were in starfish mode, so that was my talk. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> um, how how was it received? Uh, I don't know. I think I guess. <laughs> people, but people asked me to um, to write it down. So so okay. I. I ended up writing like a little blog post version of it. Okay, and cool. um, so I guess that points to like some people liked it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so can you just um, go into what Rails Bridge is a little bit more? Just yeah, to, yeah, I totally can. Okay. I guess I, yeah, I totally like didn't even say what we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely so, Railsbridge started as an organization to get um, more women into specifically the Rails community. So it was it was born of this moment when uh, at the San Francisco Ruby meetups, 
there were always these two women in this like large group of people and they were the only women. So these were the two Sarahs, Sarah Allen and Sarah May. And uh, after one of these meetups, they got together and they said, you know, it's kind of lonely. They're, it's just us. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they decided they would have a workshop and they thought they would have to like do a lot of outreach and try to try to convince all of their friends to bring their friends. They, they were prepared for like this being a pretty um, uphill trek. And so they, so they just posted a meetup saying, come to our, like to Sarah May's office at the time. We're just going to like walk through building a really simple rails app and we will walk you through every step of the way. So no experience necessary, just bring your computer. So they, they post this meetup um, and they, they give it the name rails bridge because they're going to be a bridge to more people coming into rails. And uh, they, they didn't initially put an RSVP limit on that on that meetup and within like a little while it was just uh like 70 people had rcp'd or something so they had to find a bigger space and um and they and they had that first workshop and then since they had so much demand they did another one the next quarter and that has just continued they just like started making these workshops happen first every quarter and then every month okay so that workshop how long does it go is it like a full day walking through yeah, it's, oh, okay it's a full saturday and um and we've expanded a little bit so it started off as specifically for women and now we still do lots of workshops for women but um we've branched out to be um we have we have workshops for all sorts of marginalized people in technology people that are marginalized in technology so we've done ones for um for african americans we've done ones for latinos we've we've done ones for uh people that are recently out of prison which is cool Oh, wow. Um, cool. Yeah. So any anyone who like for whom uh, there is a barrier to entering tech, that's that's mm-hmm. who we want to like, reach out to. Wow, that's super interesting. That's a lot of work to create those workshops, isn't it? It is. It is a lot of work, but I don't do it alone. There, mm-hmm. there's a whole community. There are hundreds of people working on it. So. Oh really? How does that yeah. work? Hundreds of people. Like how many people work on one workshop? Oh, to organize one workshop, there are probably three or four organizers, and then probably about 50, for a large workshop, there are probably like 50 volunteers that come teach. How does that work? So, um, <laughs> okay. so we have, so we're, we're a bunch of Rails developers, so we, so we of course, wrote um, an app to, to help this all work. So you can, you RSVP to like either attend or to attend and teach. Um, and if you are, if you, if you volunteer to come teach, we have the curriculum all laid out. Uh, you can, you can like specify what class level you think you are. You answer, if you're attending, then we have some, uh, some questions that you can answer to like help you get into the right group. And mm-hmm. if you're teaching, you like, that's kind of your choice, like what, where you'd like to teach. Um, and then oh. we, we just like click a button as an organizer, you click a button and it, and you tell the app how many rooms you have in this office and it will sort everyone into the rooms. Okay, so so you can RSVP and say you want to teach and what does that mean? So you RSVP and then you get a curriculum and then you have to, you can choose like a part of it and then prepare that and or how does that work? Well, the curriculum's online and so people walk through it together. So everyone comes into ah. like to their room and pulls up the curriculum and then walks through it together. 
So okay. as a okay. teacher, like we've tr- we've tried to take away a lot of the like overhead of preparation. Like okay. you should be able to walk in, especially if you've done it before, you should be able to just walk in and start teaching. If you're if you're a first time teacher, some preparation is definitely useful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you walk through. So basically, as a teacher, you um you're there just to 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 kind of answer questions, I guess, and walk through the cur- curriculum with with everybody and and or like is there always one teacher teaching one room or or is it multiple teachers and with mixed in with attendees and you have smaller groups or something like that so we so we have uh so we so everyone comes in and they're usually like in a big workshop there are like say a hundred people um and or a hundred attendees and Mm -hmm. maybe like 50 volunteers that are there to teach um (laughs) and then we and then we do like a welcome and then we break out into small groups based on experience level and operating system. And from there, um, each, each class will have like a specific, uh, like there, there are specific expectations. So if, um, we, one thing that we say is, uh, the only thing that you need to have is a computer with like, and, and we can't support every single operating system because it's hard to get rails installed on all of them. So we have, but we go pretty far back and we're pretty good at installing rails. So we can get it on a lot. <laughs> okay. um, and so uh, if you if you bring in your computer, um, we joke like you should just like you should be able to turn on your computer and we can take it from there. Like we can walk you through the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from like if, if you're coming in with no experience whatsoever, it's probably not useful for you to deploy a Rails app. That will be that will be a little bit too fast yeah. and you won't. And you won't remember everything, right? And right. and you'll feel overwhelmed instead of inspired and excited. So for for those groups, they usually spend a lot of time working on Ruby alone. Um, so they'll they'll like work through like the different like the different types of uh, like the, we don't really have primitive types, but if we had primitive types working through primitive types, so like what's an array? What's a hash? What's a string? What's mm-hmm. you know int? And instead of instead of making a Rails app, they do that, and then optionally they can make a Sinatra app with like uh, with some of the methods that like they'll they'll end up creating a class that inherits from another class, and they each have some methods, right? Like that's that's like the culmination of of like the first like of the intro to Ruby, and so optionally you can just like make that into a Sinatra app and deploy that to Heroku if you want, because some people really want to put something on the web. Um, and if you've come in with some programming experience, then you deploy a, a Rails app that, um, well, it's called Suggestitron. There are, there are like, I'm pretty sure we, like, there are, there are more Suggestitrons on Heroku than Hello Worlds. I, I have no idea, but, like, that would be my guess. Okay. So, um, so you do that. And then if you've, if you've come before, then we, then we have, like, a, additional curricula. So you should, like, be able to, like, keep going three or four times and always learn something new. Cool. Uh, how often is that? Like, what is the... so in San Francisco? We do we do them every month. Um, uh-huh. In New York, they do them every quarter. I think in Boston, they do them every quarter. It's it depends on like the uh, like how big the community is in a specific area and what like those organizers feel like they can take on. Okay, <clears throat> so that's so that means also uh, the curriculum for the different levels. Um, you basically um, wrote them or made them made them once, and they stay yes. the same for a long time. 
Is that correct? They, yeah, they're they're pretty stable. We we update them for like um, versions of Ruby and Rails, but mm -hmm. um, they're pretty they're pretty set now. Okay, cool. So I'm wondering um, if you um, make a workshop for uh, yeah, it doesn't matter which group, like African Americans or Latinos. Like, how do you how do you reach that specific group now how do you make sure you get a big group to come to yeah that's um so we learned early on that um so we're like organizationally we're a group of mostly white women hmm. um and so we learned early on that, that this uh this idea that like we are not like we shouldn't go into communities that we are not a part of and and try to hold a workshop. So what yeah. we do if it's uh, if it's a a community that we're not really a part of, then we um, then we partner with other organizations. So um, for for some of the workshops we've we've partnered with uh, with other meetup groups, or we will or they will hold the actual meetup, and we will bring our curriculum and some of the some volunteers. Structure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And how big, so, so big, how, how big are those workshops? Is there a big it turnout? Entirely, yeah. It entirely depends on like, um, on how much space we have and, uh, and what the, like what the goals are. So for mm. like, if it's, if it's a place where we haven't done a workshop before, it's nice to do a kind of small workshop. Uh, that lets it doesn't overwhelm the organizers as much. Um, right. And then if someone's a more experienced organizer and they like want to do that, then you know, um, I think New York routinely does uh, workshops that have 150 attendees, which is really big. Wow, it's a lot of that's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's really cool. That sounds really yeah. great. It's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So how much? How much time do you, are you spending uh, per week on that? Uh, quite a lot. Um, less than less than I used to. We've uh, so as we've as we've grown, part of that is uh, for a few people that are pretty core to the organization. To like, we should be defining our roles um, and then picking from that what we are most excited about and what we think we can really do well. And then giving it the other things to other people, like so, so finding and recruiting people that that would like to take on other things. So at this point, um, I probably spend I would say fifteen hours a week uh, doing Railsbridge stuff, which is very doable. That's mm -hmm. that's like not too much. But there have been points where it was um, like, uh, let's see, it was probably. At the at the worst, it was probably like forty hours a week, which is like a full time job on top of a full time job. Totally. <laughs> so, do you get? We don't do that yeah. Do you get? Do you get time from GitHub to to do that? No. Well, I mean, uh, I probably could, but I really like I like having like my my job and then my like my side project, right? Which okay. Is Fridge. So. Yeah. No. Well, it's it's totally doable if it's it's if it's the only side project you have. Fifteen hours is doable. Do you have more side projects? Because that could turn there. Um, there are some that like Railsbridge is probably my main. Yeah. The main thing, and and Railsbridge encompasses a lot. There there are apps within 
Railsbridge, there are, um, there are curricula to maintain, right? So, so there, so like it's, it's one side project with many small projects inside of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So, so then you, they, you got invited to an interview, right? To go to GitHub. Yes. Okay. So how was that? How was the whole hiring or interview experience with GitHub? Is it very challenging? So um, at the time, so I think since we've uh, started to grow more as an organization, we've kind of changed um, how we approach hiring, how we approach interviewing. Okay. At the time, I think it, oh, go so, ahead. Sorry. sorry. Um, when, so when was that? When, when were you interviewed for GitHub? For, um, for it would have been the spring of 2013. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So that's like two years ago or so. Yeah. Just for context. <clears throat> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then I joined in June of 2013. Um, mm -hmm. So there, I think uh, at that time, I think things were a little bit more ad hoc. Things were um, not quite as defined and crafted. So the interview experience was structured. But, um, for example, like I, I had asked a lot of questions and like just chats over coffee about, um, I had, I had concerns that like GitHub is a, is a lot of guys and I'm not a guy. Will I fit in those kinds of questions? Will I, will I, am, am I able to succeed in this environment? Right. Oh, um, mm -hmm. so I, so I had, I had a lot of questions like that. And so when I came in for my interview, they made a point of, uh, having an interview for me that was a bunch of women that I could talk to that worked at GitHub and I could ask real questions. And I'm like, uh, one question that I remember was, do you feel like you can wear a dress? And like, when you come to work and like, it was, it was so, uh, it, like it was, there was this really great thing about having a less structured interview because they could, they could like change the interview to kind of fit me. Hmm. So I got, I got a chance to like ask questions, like concerns that I had. Right. And have right. those really addressed. So uh, as we as we tried to like be more structured, I hope that we like continue to like really listen to the candidates and um, mm -hmm. and make sure that whatever they're worried about, we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, so so I guess those um, they were able to take away your worries during the interview. Ses yeah, the thing that I found most comforting about that was that they they were really honest. Um, so they, so they would say things like it is, it is a very, uh, male dominant culture. And in, that was, that had to be the case. It would have been really surprising if they had said anything other than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But, um, but that I could ask questions and they could say, um, either, yes, this is a problem. We know about it and we're trying to fix it or, um, this is, this is a problem. Like, so th that's what I think they mostly said for a lot of my concerns. So, uh, just having more women at GitHub will be a good thing for GitHub. And that's not, and I, and it's not only true for women. That was just like my specific concern, mm -hmm. but like, um, we need, we need to increase diversity on lots of different axes. So when I, when I had those questions, I, it was really reassuring that they could, um, talk to me about, caring about this, wanting to fix it, uh, making sure that the environment was, uh, welcoming to people that would be coming in. So I got, I got a lot of 
uh, of my questions answered. <clears throat> and was the picture they painted for you, was it accurate? Now that you're so, there for a while? Well, GitHub has changed a lot. Um, and and so, like, what what is the case now was not the case then. Mm. Uh, and and I, th I think also there was, uh, there was, like, you can be honest with someone and then, like, also the truth is very deep, right? Like, the truth is complex. And so, there, like, I've come to understand, like, like, the many, like the 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 nuances of, um, of like diversity problems, and I and I also think it's not just a, like GitHub has GitHub problems, but there are also like tech problems around diversity that are just like across the industry. So, like trying to separate those out, trying to fix things, trying to like show like trying to fix things in a way where we can like make ourselves better and make tech better because GitHub's kind of a big platform, right? Like. Um, GitHub maybe can move, like if we can, if we can change ourselves in a way that like helps other people get better too, that would be really awesome. If we can change the product so that the product is more welcoming, that means more people can get into tech itself. Mm -hmm. So like those sorts of opportunities, that would be great. Hmm. Okay. Um, so when you, so, um, obviously they hired you, <laughs> so, so you were, um, so you, when you started, what, uh, what, what were you doing at GitHub? What kind of work? Um, so Ruby and JavaScript, or in our case, CoffeeScript. Um, and uh, I maintain a collaborative email client that we use internally um, for any communication that interacts with pe people outside GitHub. So... Um, so I did not know anything about email when I joined GitHub. I, I knew about uh, I knew about Rails and I knew about JavaScript, and mm -hmm. that and so that's still the thing that I do day to day. But I've also learned a lot more about email, and I and I've worked on the same project since I joined. So oh, I know you're still you're well. still working at the same on the same project. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. So. So, so the whole JavaScript part. So, when did you when did you get into JavaScript? Because so far um, I only heard you talking about Ruby. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. So when I was at ModCloth, we wrote a Backbone app that was well. There's a ton of JavaScript all over, like any modern web app. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we wrote like I I was on a little team of two that just so uh, I'm sure you've. I'm sure you're familiar with like um, the idea that the faster a page responds, like the the better some business metrics can become. So, mm -hmm. uh, wanted to we, we wanted to A B test the idea that like if if we could improve uh, response times, we could uh, we could up the like the like these. So there are some metrics for e-commerce like. Um, the conversion funnel, like how much people are adding to their carts, uh, and then if they, and then the conversion funnel is like, do they add things to their cart? Um, do they go to their cart and do they buy things from their cart? So that's the whole funnel. And at every step, people like don't do something, and that's like the leaky funnel or something. So we went to and try. We went to try to improve those metrics by improving response times, and part of that was like working on. The browse, like the normal browser experience, and so things like 
gzipping and uh, and making sure that we're reducing the number of requests. So like all of that stuff happened too. And then um, our mobile experience was still slow because you're you're working with uh, like a, just a really different environment. So you have like a less powerful machine. You can't. It's it's really bad on a phone to wait for a response from for a server if you have a bad network, for example. Mm. So we wanted we wanted to try to experiment with um, with something that could feel very usable, even if it had to wait for a while. So if you've ever like clicked something and then you, it gets the first byte back, so your page goes entirely white, and then and you can't shop while the page is entirely white, right? So you have to, as a shopper, you're just frustrated. You're like, well. I wanted to see that dress, but now I can't. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to try to experiment with something where they could they could continue to look at pictures and and see see things until we had the whole page, and then we could like uh, we could just like replace some of the content. So instead of having to do a full page refresh, only change like the things that were specific to the new thing that they were going to. So if they were like if they were going from one dress to the next dress, we could like swipe that in and not have to like reload the header, for example. Mm -hmm. So we we wanted to try to like have a spike into a very fast and optimized mobile experience. Cool. And that was uh, all in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. so. All in JavaScript and with Backbone? And with Backbone, yes. Okay. Do you like Just, Backbone? It, it, well, it was, um, it was great for what we used it for. And at the time, I guess it was, that was probably 2012 ish, I want to say. Um, mm -hmm. it was, so Ember, Ember was like not really an option at the time. Um, I think Angular was something of an option. Maybe Ember was just very young, but it was around. I don't quite remember. Still, but backbone, still in flux a lot, Ember at that time. Yeah. Tightly, yeah. It's, yeah, I don't, I don't quite remember all the decisions that went into like choosing Backbone, but it seemed like, uh, it would, the main thing we needed was like, essentially just like the backbone router and then everything else was kind of hand-rolled. Okay. Uh -huh. Cool. So, and I think it's kind of my understanding of backbone that like every backbone project can be very different from every other backbone project. It's not as convention driven. Yeah. yeah so, totally. yeah. so whether or not, so like I could say I liked that project and that probably doesn't um, have much bearing on what any other, like if I like any other backbone project, I guess. Yeah. 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 True. Um, okay, so at GitHub then, uh, so yeah, so GitHub famously uses CoffeeScript. Was that something that, that you were like excited about using uh, in the front end or, or not? Because there's, <laughs> there's a very divided world. Well, I guess since you are a Ruby programmer, you were inclined to like it. But what yeah, are your, what's your I... take on that? Um, I was very uncomfortable with someone else controlling the value of this for me. Mm -hmm. I, I had control issues. Um, but after <laughs> I, <laughs> after I, uh, used, after I like did a few things in it and just like got my feet wet, I, like I, I enjoyed a lot now. I find it really, um, I find it very readable. I find it very, like, I like the terse syntax. Um, I, I find it easy to write because like because of the Ruby probably. Um, so now I'm entirely on board with it. At the time mm -hmm. I was like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, like, so I, here's what I would do. I would, um, 
I would write CoffeeScript and then I would see, I would like look at the JavaScript that was generated and I would like, I would try to, I wanted to write JavaScript, right? And so I was trying to like figure out what I have to do to make my JavaScript look just like this. And you really can't write CoffeeScript like that. You have to like mm. write CoffeeScript. Yeah. So for a little while it was laborious. But <laughs> Interesting. But, but this is, that's really like a set technology over at GitHub then. So you can't, you can't say, hey, I would rather use JavaScript and just write JavaScript. Is that a possibility? Oh, you can. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you shouldn't do this, but but um, <laughs> it has been done that people will just like uh, like write a like a JS file, and you can just drop it into the directory, and that's fine too. It'll still get like um, compiled with everything else, hmm. like into your assets. So it'll it will work, and some people do it. Um, okay. But There's when some people I fight find <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so i i'm not one of those people anymore uh and on the app that i work on uh when i when i see those files i take them out so oh yeah really do you yeah. rewrite yeah. them in CoffeeScript? yeah i do oh, okay like i i don't know if there are any left because um i like i think it just it's a nice thing for all of the just for all the files to match right like it, it mm -hmm. should be like a style effect kind of thing yeah i think so too yeah you should but technologically that would totally work you could do right that. right okay um so you, you've been working on this uh so email app right for internal email yeah it's for so it so if you think about how github is collaborative and you and you mention teams and you mention people to like get reviews on things this is a way to communicate um that that brings those same ideas to to things that aren't code just to like conversations and, um, hmm. and it's used by the sales team, by the support team, by the people who uh, run trainings. So we, so if you like, uh, if you would like GitHub to come train your company, like that's a, there, there's a team that will, that flies all over the world doing that. And they, they coordinate things using this email client. So it's, it's pretty widely used internally. Um, and it's, we think of it as a production system that no one can see. So it's, uh, it's very important. It's very important to me, especially it's my baby. <laughs> yeah. Is it only you working on it? No, that, well, it's a team of two, um, uh -huh. maybe two and a half. Someone, someone spends like a little bit of time working on it on the side. Oh. Uh, and so we have, so we have a small team, small, but mighty. And how is it different than from, from something like Gmail, for instance? Oh, it's entirely different. They, um, so like Gmail is your, like your personal email, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is like everything here is, uh, is viewable to everyone in the company. So, oh. uh, so the, and then a lot of work goes into like making sure that you get notified about things that are important to you. So, um, like for example, say I say I worked on a feature on .com that changes uh, the way checkboxes are used or something. Like maybe I want to I want to be notified if there are particular if there are bugs that are filed about about checkboxes specifically, right? So like um, the point is, it should be viewable by everyone. Everyone should be able to like chip in and help when solving a problem for for somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we want to do some good work to make sure that we notify you of when like it would be especially helpful if you jumped in. And how, how do you get notified? Is that 
via how is there like um, a notification system from the browser or so so it works a it it's very similar to the way github.com works so you uh -huh. can have email notifications or their web notifications where okay. you can like go go look at what you've been notified for okay so does it is it basically like is it similar to the issues system for instance um, github.com or it's a, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine exactly how, yeah, how it would so because you say you say so basically it's an email it's an email system so it uses the email protocol right yes. to send messages like if but at the same time it's like a, an inbox that everybody can look into or yes, everybody that is can, right okay so i'm just trying to uh <laughs> to to imagine yeah wrap your head around this yeah so it's exactly it's yeah, so, but at the same time, so first, so basically it's an inbox that everybody has access to, everybody can see everything, but then there's also a filter that shows you only the stuff that, that was sent to you specifically, or something like that, or yes. view, or something. Yeah, well, so usually, um, well, it, it like how you use it depends on um, how much you communicate with people outside of the company. So, oh. um so say you are, so we have this really awesome support team at GitHub. If you've ever like had a, like had trouble, then you will know that we have this great group of people that um, are super smart and also super kind. They're mm -hmm. one of like the, like one of my favorite teams at the company. And so if you're, if you're like, if you're a support person, then you might, uh, use it very differently than someone who works, uh, let's see, like as an engineer. Um, fixing bugs and making features. So if I'm if I'm doing support, then I want to look at most of the things that come in for my specific domain. So uh, maybe I do um, technical support. And so when people have have trouble with like the API or something, like I want to answer those questions. So I would just like I would just like get the stream, like just get the fire hose of all of those, like everything that's about like the API, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if I am an API developer, then maybe I only want to see the things that are escalated to me or the things that when someone like pulls me into those conversations, mm -hmm. does that, so, so, um, maybe in some ways that's a little bit like issues. Like you could be the kind of person, like if you're the maintainer, maybe you look through all the issues. And if you are, um, if you're just someone who works on a different, like who works on a specific part of the project, then maybe you, you don't look at all of the issues and you just wait to be like mentioned in or something. Mm -hmm. So, it might, so it might work like issues might be a really good metaphor. Okay. Us. And if you write, so if you write an email in that system, do you actually write an email address to somebody or do you just, did you like implement ad mentions or something like that to, to abstract yeah. that away? Yeah, at mentions and t mentions um, all work the same way they do in .com. That's very interesting. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, cool. So basically, uh, so so how I understood it now is that it is um, just a huge inbox where everybody can look <laughs> into, <laughs> but there's like multiple ways to filter what you see. Yeah, we, we've cut like uh, when you log in, um, you like depending on what like what you have said you uh, you want to like be notified about, uh -huh. you'll, you'll get a really different experience. Right. Person to person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And um, so I'm just wondering, 
is is there would it, would it make sense to open source that software in some way to make it available so, for other companies um people have talked about this from time to time and uh as one of the two people working on this i think that we like we we would need to do a little bit more work before i think it's in a place where um that could go out so so my answer is not yet right but it is it is something that you're talking about or thinking about Yeah, it's definitely on the back burner. Like right now, like my right. my number one priority is keeping it like is adding the feature so that people um, that are using it day to day that rely on it to do their jobs are right. happy and productive. Right. And when it gets to like if uh, there's infinite free time in the future, then like <laughs> <laughs> then then we can talk about like what would have to go into like making it um, releasable right, in right. whatever. Yeah. Okay. But but it's not. I don't. I don't think it's quite mature enough for that yet. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, you must have. You must have like tons and tons of requests, right? Like feature requests, yes. like endless. <laughs> it's it's part of the charm of of uh, working on something that's used internally as much as it is. It's like I'm very accessible to all of my stakeholders, so mm -hmm. uh, so I get I get to hear a lot about um, things that are pain points, which is great. It's wonderful. Love hearing about it. Okay, cool. If anyone, if anyone at GitHub is listening, keep the feature requests coming. It, and how how do you prioritize your feature requests? Because I'm sure you have just like you have enough work for a lot, you know, like for uh, years, I guess. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I'm sure, like, especially like people who use it every day, like salespeople, support people, they must be like totally always like, ah, oh, there's this one thing I really want, and they're gonna pester you. Like crazy. Yeah. How do you how do you prioritize that stuff? That's really hard. Um, we so we try to do something similar to what you would do on a like on a more public facing um, application, and that is uh, we want to collect metrics. So so we rely on um, like looking at where people are clicking, what features people are using, how often are we like. So, so there are specific types of notifications and like bumping up things in priority there can be like, is, is that, is that changing people's workflows? Is that not making a difference? Should we, um, should we change the way that we're doing that to like make, to like increase, uh, people's productivity? So, so having the same metrics that you would want in place to make those decisions for a, like a public facing app is like what we're trying to do here. And that's, that's hard because like, um, For for some things, like there are, there are very different use cases. So there are, there are people that use it every single day, and like we call them power users. Our power users are are going to have different features than like the the person who jumps into it once or twice a day. Mm -hmm. So so trying to balance. So like the power users are going to like skew all of our stats, right? Yeah. Because they're using it every single day. So mm -hmm. trying to like find a way to balance like what's useful for for the power users and how do we still provide a good experience for everybody um has been like it's something that like i just like we're thinking about all the time hmm. like trying to sneak in some things but really optimize for power users i guess is where we come down most of the time interesting um do you is it just then you and your other team member that make those decisions or do you have to talk to other people for that stuff um, so it used to be like that. It used to be that we would just, we would just decide what we're doing. Right. And, mm -hmm. 
and it's been really great um, to have, we, we have kind of like weekly check-ins with uh, one person from support, one person from sales, and then, uh, you know, other people are welcome to join in mm-hmm. um, where we were like, like they can like bring us the things that are like most important and like they can be kind of um, like they can prioritize for their team. And then we can talk about like what, like what the relative priority would be across across like different teams. So that's been a fantastic development to just like know that what we're doing is important to like our main stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So we try to talk to them a lot. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sounds, sounds, uh, yeah, sounds fun. Sounds interesting. Yeah, I like it a lot. Uh, okay. So you said you learned a lot of, uh, a lot about email, uh, protocols, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I learned more than I thought I would ever know. I was I was one of those people that was if you had asked asked me how email works, I would say you hit send. And, and <laughs> yeah. So. So what are you using? Yeah. Which protocol are you using? Are you using IMAP? Uh. So well, like, so I I find out about emails um from SMTP uh protocols. So okay. like. I I don't have to actually like we we use um third-party providers to send and receive email. Right. So, so I can just, I can just like create a mime and then process a mime Mm -hmm. and like that, that's, um, and unless something goes wrong, that's usually all I have to do. And then when things go wrong, that becomes, um, very confusing (laughs) and adventurous. I'm sure. Do, Do you work with a designer for that thing as well? So there's, so like, uh, the other person that's, um, on the project full time is, uh, a front end, um, UI engineer. So she, she works on, um, she, she owns the front end code and I own the back end code if, if like there were strict lines, but they're like, she's, she sometimes will, um, will write some Ruby and I will sometimes like modify some views or I never write CSS. Her CSS is gorgeous and I would only muck up for great CSS. So that that's kind of a, like uh, a line I do not cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but does she that, write I'm, coffee script? Yeah, she does write coffee script. Okay. Um, and so she, she has, um, she has a design background. She's done some design um, and she's primarily a developer, but uh, she kind of, she kind of like owns the UI. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> um, okay. So what is, just to wrap up the GitHub part, what is the, like, the coolest thing you learned at GitHub? Most important thing. The most important thing I've learned again. Um, I would say um, that the thing that I, I don't know if this is cool. Um, one of the <laughs> things that, that uh I, that has been most eye-opening for me is watching DDoS attacks. Watching DDoS attacks ah. is something like... Oh, that was recently no, no going one, on, right? No one ever tried to take... Well, one person tried to DDoS mod cloth, but that uh-huh. was a joke DDoS. And um, and I'm not an operations engineer, so I, I'm, I'm never like going to be responsible for fighting a DDoS. Yeah. Watching them, watching the tactics that people use in a DDoS, watching how like traffic changes, um, watching, watching the mitigation is amazing to watch. It's like these, the, I'm in such awe of 
my coworkers when, when these things are happening there. So it's often happening like in a, like in the middle of the night, sometimes they're stressed. They still, they still manage to do amazing work. And, um, and it's, it's really impressive to watch. Right. So. There was a really big attack recently, right? It was just a few days yeah. ago or something. Yeah. Was, I think, I think it started a few weeks, like maybe a, a week ago or it ended a week ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long did that, how long did that go for? Um, I think, I think there were, there was about a week of sustained attack. That's crazy. Yeah. I, during that time I, I saw, I saw that it was happening on Twitter, but during that time I was not using GitHub, um, mm -hmm. or I didn't need to use GitHub at that time. So it was not really, um, it wasn't in my present in my mind at all. I was just like, Oh, uh, it's going on again. Okay. Moving on to something else. And then, um, yeah. So, but that's that's uh, yeah. That's super, that's super interesting. I have no idea how how this how this works. So, what are the things? What are the th how 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 do you deal with that? Like when when you have this kind of attack, what what are the well, first measures you can take? Uh, you have to get someone else on a podcast to talk okay. about that. I'm okay. so not the expert for that one. But um, but the like one thing that uh, I wanted to say was if you had to use GitHub during that time, like as a testament to our operations engineers, I think you wouldn't have, like there's a good chance you wouldn't have noticed. Oh, okay. So very availability was affected for some people, but for, like given, given uh, like how big the attack was mm. and how, um, how long it went on, very few people were actually affected, which is amazing. So. That is amazing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I have to get somebody on. Ha. Huh. Maybe you can re <laughs> maybe you can refer somebody or something. Yeah, great. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. So you'll be coming to Germany. Is that the first time you're coming to Germany? It's not the first time I'm coming to Germany. It's the first time I will be coming to Germany in a long time. So um, I went. I, I I spent a little bit of time trying to learn German. So spending time in Germany and Austria and Switzerland uh, yeah. when I was a lot younger, um, and and it was wildly unsuccessful because everyone was excited to try out their English. And so <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> so it didn't work that well. Yeah, it's 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 quite difficult, I think, for an English speaking person to uh, yeah, because everybody's super excited to. Uh, to show that they speak English and that they can speak English well and stuff. <laughs> or want to, Which they I want appreciate to practice. It. I'm sure, yeah. Well, it's, it makes it easy for you, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so so um, yeah, so you're coming. So how did how did you um, so Ole Michaelis, who was also a podcast guest, he um, invited you to come to uh, so called conf. Is that correct? That's true. There was there was some back and forth though because he and I disagree mightily about services. Okay. So, uh, so he said, uh, "I've seen some of the other things. Like some of the other things you've talked about are cool." Um, and then I and then I proposed talking about services, uh, and he said, um, "Like," he, and he pushed back. He said, "Well, I don't know if that's really true." <laughs> so we had we had to have uh, some back and forth for a while before. Uh, we we exchanged two emails. It wasn't it wasn't a long uh, debate, but okay. uh, I definitely had to make a case for why this is an important thing to talk about. Uh, and then and then I got 
invited. <laughs> okay, so. cool. So how do you so how do you know each other? Um, Jesse Toth, who is an engineer at GitHub, uh, sent us intros when she uh, she realized that she couldn't go to so coded, and so she she wanted to like find find somebody else. So she's she introduced us. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah, so I don't want you to talk too much about what you're going to talk about because people are supposed to go there to watch you talk. Yeah. So yeah. we know it's going to be about services and um, maybe do you want to tease a little more maybe? Or did we do that already in the beginning? Well, I think I think one thing that we haven't hit on is that um, this is this is like a a series of disasters. So the talk is service-oriented disasters and it's a series of... Um, things that I thought would make problems better, things that I had good reason to think would make problems better, things that blog posts all over the internet were saying would help, uh, and and they didn't help. And part of this, I think, is because a lot of the conversation around services has focused on how to build out services and has not focused on what are the, like, should we be building services? What are the implications? Mm. How does that play out if you do build services? Like what are like if we talk about a lot about maintainability and you have to you have to actually maintain something to actually like to have that conversation. So I think services are like for a while they were new enough that that wasn't really a conversation we were in a place to have, right? We didn't we didn't have a lot of data to start talking about how maintainable services are. And if there's if they are actually delivering on that promise of solving the problems we thought they would solve, hmm. so now I think we're in a place where we can like look back, we can reflect, we can see what was unmaintainable about that, what was and what was good, right? Like the talk, the talk focuses on mistakes, hmm. um, it focuses on things that went wrong, but I think that also points us towards uh, the cases when like those those are teachable moments, right? And we and we can understand like oh, the reason it went wrong was because of X. If it had been Y, that would have worked out much better. So hmm. um, so it's, a, it's focused on, on when services were a bad idea, and then, and then we can kind of tease out from that, like when are services actually very useful and, and productive. Very cool. Yeah, that yeah. sounds very interesting. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think uh, everybody should go and, and watch your talk. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so did you actually at ModCloth when you did you revert then once you realized that the, the your services were maintainable uh, to In some cases we did. Okay. Yeah. So So there were cases though cases, where it worked out? Yeah, there were cases where um where we realized the mistake early enough that it was possible to back up from it. And there were other cases where um what what was problematic was kind of it took a long time to like develop like that problem took a long time to like manifest itself mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. in those cases it was kind of harder to back away from from those architecture decisions mm. um Too and costly. then and then yeah exactly like we could do this um and when you look at the engineering effort versus the engineer engineering effort to continue to maintain it it, it didn't make sense mm -hmm. so um but if we can tell people about it, then they won't have to. They won't. They won't maybe fall into the same situation. Right. So, so is it fair to say that services for for your use case back then was absolutely like there was no part of your use case where it really was good for 
where it worked out? Um, so I don't think that's entirely true. There, so I don't talk about this in the talk, but maybe I should actually. I should give oh, a good example. Well. <laughs> this has been very productive. I'm glad we had this talk. Um, so we so we did have we had a feature called Style Gallery, which is one of the coolest features about Mod Cloth, actually. So it's um, it's it's a way for people to take pictures of their outfits and then tag the Mod Cloth piece. That they're that they're wearing, and then we'll show that along alongside like the product shots of, of like the cardigan or dress or something. Mm. So the reason this is really cool is because it's um, just as a side. Like we can talk about why it was a good services architecture in a second, but like mm -hmm. as a as a, a feature, this is awesome because it kind of overturns uh, a lot of the. Um, body image problems that the fashion industry has. So if if you look at if you look at clothes at a lot of on a on a lot of websites, you see people that all look the exact same that that have unrealistic body types for most people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really cool to see people being very creative with their clothing, wearing clothing that makes them feel good, that looks great, that's flattering. Mm -hmm. And I and uh, and at the and overturns these ideas that everyone's supposed to look one way. Mm. So, totally. um, so cool. style gallery is, is a super cool feature. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that made it a good use case for services was that you don't need the style gallery to shop. So it has a very different uptime requirement than other parts of the application. Uh, if you think about something like an identity service, which is something that a lot of blog, like, uh, a lot of things that talk about services will talk about building out an identity service as either your first service or um, an, a service that you build very early on because there's usually a lot of logic built into like a user model or something like user model. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to reduce the bulk of your application and you see services as a way to reduce the bulk of your application, um, then that can, that can remove a fairly large and internally complicated part. So it seems like an attractive thing to do. Mm -hmm. One of the downsides of doing that is that an identity service is usually absolutely essential to whatever your app does. So it has the effect of instead of having one single point of failure in your app, you now have two single points of failure. You have your main application and an identity service. So these become two absolutely essential things that have to be up all the time or money can't come in, for example, if yeah. like assuming that you really have to have your identity service. Mm -hmm. um, by contrast, Style Gallery can go down and people can still add things to their cart and they can still shop, they can still buy things, they can sign in. Mm -hmm. So Style Gallery is a, is a good use case for services. Okay. Good. <clears throat> so there's one good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one good thing. That's good to know. It's it's also, yeah, because I know there's there must be use cases where it's uh, good as well. I was just wondering if there was one or a couple that where it actually worked for you. So that was one. That's right, good. Right. Okay, cool. Well, I think uh, we're ready to move to the picks. Cool. You, you said you prepared some picks, which uh, which is great. Um, yeah, so let's go back and forth with our picks. So what is your first pick? Okay, my first pick. Um, so I like to go backpacking. I have, I have a, like a little, a group of friends and I go backpacking fairly often. And um, when you backpack, you need to minimize the weight and volume of whatever you are carrying with you. And, and then you also need to like 
take care of yourself. You need you need to bring some things uh, just so you can like eat, <laughs> so you can have shelter. Those sorts of things. So yeah. uh, my first pick is backpacking gear. Um, it is it's the uh, jet boil flash cooking system. And the thing that I really love about the jet boil is that it's super lightweight and it's extremely optimized for the thing that it does, which is boil water in under two minutes. Um, and I love this thing. Every, every time we go hiking, uh, I'm, I'm in charge of the jet boil. I'm like the camp cook because <laughs> I can work the jet boil really fast. So you pour water in, you turn on the gas, it all fits together super quickly. So you pop things, um, out of, out of the jet boil and, and they all just like click together. Uh, you, you pour some water in and, uh, and turn on the gas, and in under two minutes, you can use that water to, like, we, we take a lot of dehydrated food, uh, and so you can either rehydrate your food, you can make hot chocolate, and it's, uh, and after you've been hiking all day, getting getting the food ready fast is, like, my favorite thing in the world. That's amazing. Cool. So yeah. the jet boil. The jet boil. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? What is, what is your first pick? Uh, my first pick is... So it's kind of a broad pick, um, but I don't know if it's actually appropriate to make it that broad because so I wrote down sound engineers, right? And I wrote that down because I just recently um, had an experience that was actually Monday where um, me and my brother, we went to um, some of the, a, a friend of ours that is a friend of ours since not a long time. We met him through another friend um to mix some tracks because i've been working with my together with my brother on some music since like two years or so like just like you know it's a side project so we don't we don't get to work on that full time so it's a, it takes a long time to get somewhere and we have like two tracks ready where we feel like okay we want to we just want to put them out we want to really finish them and <clears throat> To, you know mix and master and everything and, and and get it out so we went to this guy and um he just uh it was kind of mind-blowing to see the process of when because my brother he 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 is a he's really uh he is a good producer he can make um a track that sounds good has a good atmosphere and and you know like it gives it makes you feel something but um, he's not a he's not a, a sound engineer. He didn't like he didn't learn about this, you know, for 15 years or something like that, how to split frequencies properly. And, you know, and what what are the tools you use to do that and to make to give everything and every single sound in your track some room. Right. So that it really sounds full and you can hear everything properly. And um, so you need a you need somebody who can do that. And most people, they give their track to a to a to, to somebody who can mix it for them and then master it and then it, the mastering makes it a little louder and so we went to this guy and it was uh and we knew we had you know like something that we liked and then but it was just not it was not it didn't sound right yet and so we had to, we went to this guy and he he actually did it um for us just like a um as a as a favor a little bit and uh, so we worked something out which which was really cool and yeah so he worked with us for the for the day and it was amazing to get this to get it to that place where it just sounds like 
big and has room and like it's it's now suddenly okay now this is something that sounds like you know you can put it on the radio or something like that you know what i mean yeah so that that so that's my pick so like a good sound engineer that can to can bring your your track to the next level that's uh, pretty amazing and he and he also told us everything about you know like how he had to he really had he he had to because it's not it's not you can't go to be a really good sound engineer you can't go to a school and just learn everything from the books and and do your little things and you know just learn the technical part you need a lot of experience and he he had to go through i think he, like 10 15 years where he where he really he was trying and trying and then he had somebody that he met somebody who was better than him that he could work with and like kind of pair like pair programming but just it was sound mixing and uh and learn from that person and then just got better step for you know step for step and now he has he really has a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience that and just like a good programmer that's really something that makes a good sound engineer as well so that was Mm. really cool Awesome. Yeah. So, um, what's your second pick? Um, so my second pick is a book, and it's not a new book; it's an old book. It's um, "Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs," which is uh, I I don't know if I don't pe- I don't know if people still read this. This is the book that um, I that I first used. So I I learned to, like one of the problems with Rails is that you can start making something before you understand much about computers about how how um everything works really Mm. you like they give you this easy api and you can start manipulating it very quickly yeah uh so after um after i started working at modcloth actually so like like as a working developer um i started or maybe i started as a an intern i started reading it but like at some point very like fairly late uh i I started reading structure interpretation of computer programs and the there's the way it works is there's like a page or two of explanation of like some concept and then there there's a series of um, and that take that takes like 30 minutes to an hour to read but then there are some examples and those will take a long time to work out like like mm-hmm. the the uh, they're they're hard they're demanding um, I found them very challenging, but having uh, having worked through it, I like I felt more accomplishment from those than from uh, any Rails book. So it's written it's written in Lisp, and um, and so you get you get a chance to like play around with something other than Ruby, which at the time was also like mind expanding for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to so I was thinking about what a more technical pick should be, and I was like, oh, my technical pick will not be some cool new programming language from Hacker News or something. It will be structure and interpretation of computer programs. So, some pick. Very cool. So, do you um, do you re- recommend this for for a- any kind of programmer, or is it specifically um, useful for backend? Or it's it's yeah. probably um, well. I found it I found it more um, educational than most things that I was reading about, like. Like if you if you if all you want to do is um, be able to use Active Record or something, this won't be the right book. Mm-hmm. But if if you wanna if you want to like get a firmer grasp of like some like computer science concepts, which I did, right? Like that, like I I wanted to know like what is like what happens 
like how like I just don't understand. I want to understand like what the computer was actually doing. I need I needed something more basic than um, than Ruby, right? Mm -hmm. Like Ruby is so high level, um, and yeah. so this was this was a really cool way to think about like how the computer like learn how to think like a computer. Um, and so one of the great things about it is that it doesn't assume any knowledge of a programming background. So anyone can pick up this book. What it does assume is uh, like a knowledge of algebra. And so a lot of the examples are um, like they'll use math examples because that's kind of like everyone kind of knows that you can start there and uh, and then you can like try to try to do things that you would know how to do in algebra, but use the computer this time. Um, and and that's that's a great way to start. I, I loved it a lot. Sounds great. Is and you said it uses Lisp in the examples. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you get really good at writing parentheses. <laughs> I have I have no idea how Lisp looks, but um, um, to, was that then was that low level enough for you, or did that or did you? Yeah, it's go funny or... to see low level because Lisp in and of itself isn't very low level. No one would no, describe exactly, that yeah. way. Would they? Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, uh, so maybe a low level is the wrong way to say it. Uh, like conceptually, uh, it gets to the heart of things, okay. I guess is, is like the right way to say it. Yeah. The concepts were low level basically, or you could say that more low level than right. making an app in Ruby on Rails. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. My second, yeah, it, oh. it would just explain. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. What's your second pick? Okay. Um, my second pick is is the um, Horse JS Twitter account. Do you know? <laughs> do you know about this I account? I do know. I love Horse JS. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just I just uh, had a good laugh uh, again today. I think what was the tweet? Um, I think let me let me just see if I can find it real quick. That was so funny. Um, yeah. And I just, I just, it's just amazing how it just pops up in your Twitter stream every now and then. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's very often is very funny. So the one that I retweeted today was, uh, there's only one thread in Node.js and it will get to your event when it's good and ready. <laughs> I just thought that was very funny for some reason. Yeah, so for people who don't know what Horse.js is, so it's inspired by Horse eBooks, I think it was the first one. And I think Sorry? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was inspired by Horse eBooks which was uh, I never really understood if it was a prank or something, something that was meant to be funny or if it was a serious bot, but it was some sort of a bot that would tweet random pieces from um, ebooks that you know were like stories with horses and and it at some point a few years ago it became this uh, this hype because or it or it became very popular because it was just because everything it tweeted out was always random pieces of sentences and it was so out of context and and totally random And the Twitter name was funny horse underscore ebooks and yeah so it just became very popular and then there were other horse underscore something accounts that popped up that did exactly the same thing and so but it but for other subjects so in this case 
I think what Horse JS is doing, I don't know if it's the only thing it's doing, but I know that that's at least part of it, is that it does some automated searches. I guess it's automated. It must be automated. Um, for for certain keywords on Twitter, like JavaScript and maybe other things. And then it takes... So this is the question for me. I don't know if it really takes a random piece of that tweet, because it's always important that it sounds different from what it was originally intended. So I'm also wondering if it's just a person that is really doing that stuff manually, because there's no... Because it's always deliberately cutting the sentence so that it sounds different. Yeah, you can tell that that the person was tweeting something different, and in context, it would not say what the horse JS thing says. So I think I think horse JS has to be a person. Yeah, like if yeah. if I can just speculate, like it's too good to not be like a very witty person behind it. No, it, it, it must be. It, it's a person, but it definitely, that person is definitely doing searches and then takes, uh, and then takes parts of those tweets. Um, and I don't know if it's only tweets, but, and then posts them as horse JS because I, I was read, I was tweeted what some of my tweets were tweeted from, from the horse JS account as well already. So oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I was super excited when that happened. I was just like, "Wow, um, I'm like a, I'm a, like a knight now." Or something. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, you're inducted into the <laughs> into some sort of secret society. Yeah, so it when actually from- it actually happened like twice or so, and I was like, "Wow, so okay, that's how it works." Like that person must really search for tweets, and then they cut out some part that sounds weird, and then uh, yeah, and that's it. So that's my what? so that's my pick. One of them from a few days ago was microlibraries discuss, and I like I just <laughs> laughed out loud at that. That's so so good. That's so funny. So whoever's doing this, they're so good. Yeah, they're like, really good. It's a great Twitter account, and nobody knows who it is. I mean, somebody yeah, must know, but know. maybe it's just the one person who does the account that knows. Who knows? <laughs> what is yeah. your third pick? Um, so I sometimes, I sometimes talk to people about, uh, gender equality stuff. And, um, one of the things that I, that I keep picking for people in real life is, uh, is this book by bell hooks called feminism is for everybody. And it's also not a new book. There've been like so many recent new books about feminism that I love and I'm really excited about, but like for just for, just a book that like everyone could read and ever like, and the more times I read it, like, like I always, I'm always like, Oh yes, I need to be reminded of this thing over and over. Um, and so feminism is for everybody is just like, it's a very small book. It's short. It's like a pamphlet. Uh, it's available on Google on, on like Google books for free. Um, mm-hmm. and so you can, uh, I think for free. Um, and, uh, and so you can, you can just like, read this very short book and feel like, feel like you have a better hold on what the problem, like what the problem is. Mm. So, uh, feminism is for everybody. That's my pick. Very cool. Um, my third pick is Git. It's 10 years old. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I thought, uh, it's a good pick. 
I I mean I love Git. I really I had to um I've been using it. I actually I think I got into Git through GitHub like like uh, a lot of developers. And um I actually when I first got into Git, I got super excited and I was I, I I never used any versioning system. So I was before that, so I was not I was not um brainwashed by SSVN subversion mm -hmm. before that and it, so I didn't have this uh, very difficult transition that many that I see many developers going through when you when you try to brainwash them uh to use git and um and so so at that company when I got into uh, git then at that company we uh we were like it was like a little agency I was working at and the web like there was like two three people working on on websites for clients and there was just literally no versioning system there was nothing like we like the developers were like while they were learning how to do things better were kind of implementing st stuff on the fly to make things better so we started using git and we had like even we, we used uh, some sort of a deployment like we would push to a git uh to a Git repository on the server and then have it deploy on a test in a test folder with a hook with a Git hook and stuff like that. All that was very exciting to figure all that stuff out and was really fun. And it was, it was, uh, I found it very empowering just uh, to use, to use Git. I love that it is decentralized and it's all local and it's quick and you can use the, the branches in your workflows and stuff like that. So yeah, Git's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right. So three picks and then we do a music pick. That's that, correct. That the... Yeah. What so what is your I, music pick? So I listened to I listened to some of the podcasts that you've done to like for this. And mm -hmm. um and my music pick is not going to fit in with your other music picks. Uh, oh, that doesn't so, matter at all. So the new Taylor Swift album is my music pick. Hey. Uh, <laughs> it's um it's what I like I've been I've been programming to it. I dance to it all the time when I'm just like doing dishes. I love the new album. It's fantastic. Cool. So yeah. So but give me uh, your favorite track. It's going to be really hard. I was afraid that you would ask this and and uh, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I, well, like, I have to uh, play one off. track in there. Okay, in "Shake there. It Off" is is probably my favorite, but I find I find them all to be really delightful and danceable. Um, okay. Also, the video for "Shake It Off" is really funny. It's it's basically Taylor Swift making fun of how she can't dance. She has she has dancers of all different styles around her, and she is failing to dance in whatever style they are dancing. So, it's it's oh. a delightful, hilarious video and a delightful, hilarious song. That's what people say.
think I saw somebody tweeting a picture on Twitter from that video. And nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering about that. I wanted to check the video out. Um, okay, cool. Um, Taylor Swift. Oh, what's your, what's your music pick? Um, yeah, my music pick today is... Um, it's it's called it's a track called Roll the Bass, and it's by Major Lazer. And uh, do you do you know who Major Lazer is? I have no idea. Okay, yeah. So yeah. Ma Major Lazer is some sort of like a. It's like a group, I guess you could say. Do you know who Diplo is? Nope. Okay. Ask well, me about Beyonce or Lady Gaga. Uh, okay. Well, they, <laughs> You're just going to have to explain all the words. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, so, no, it's not much to explain. It's just uh, Diplo is, is, a, is a DJ and he's also a producer. And he's pretty much, he's like in the, in the scene that is called the EDM scene, I think, okay. in America. He's pretty, he's pretty well known. And um, he has this, this kind of DJ crew that's called Major Laser. And what they do is... Um, so it's actually, it's, it's interesting because he, he has been, um, very interested in the Jamaican music culture and, and in Jamaican music culture, you have the sound system culture, which means there is <clears throat> people who are, um, playing like, you know, the poor parts of, of Jamaica people would like, um, have a sound system like sound system is like literally what you would think a sound system they would build big sound systems outside and they would have people <clears throat> then spinning records and then they would have um, people talking over the records and and singing and stuff like that and um, they would have sometimes have like sound systems playing against each other where where the audience would decide which sound system did a better job right via reactions and stuff like that so like a like what you would call battling maybe in hip-hop or whatever so the similar culture and uh so so major laser is 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 kind of diplo's sound system because he actually recruited some guys that had um a sound system that was playing jamaican music a sound system that was uh, from america somewhere um they were playing jamaican music uh and touring the world and um, in that within that culture worldwide they were also well known and he he recruited some of those guys and he created the major laser sound system which now doesn't play exactly jamaican music but what they do is that they, they play the music basically that diplo makes since a long time uh, that edm like electronic kind of music and they put jamaican artists on top of that so they kind of they mix that up and I, I find I find I, I find this uh, oftentimes I find it quite enjoyable, and uh, that has a lot to do with me liking Jamaican music a lot and stuff like that. But so this specific track is called "Roll the Bass," and I really like, especially the first minute of that track. But there's a there's a Jamaican I don't know who a Jamaican artist singing on top of. This uh, this like electronic music and just it, this mixture, it's just very well made and uh, I I really enjoy that mixture. So that is 
my music page. We ready for the war. I see the fear in all your eyes. I can smell the desperation. But we have that place, you know. Major laser sound, yes, I we rule the nation. Tonight a little jump and we'll die. Some boy eradication. And it no really matter why you try. Yeah. Awesome. So um, we're through. So wh where can the listeners find you on the web? Um, I am at Rachel Myers everywhere on the web, um, Twitter and GitHub and I don't know. Those are the main places, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And you'll be... In... Feel free to argue about services. Yes, exactly. Argue about services uh, all over the web with at uh, <laughs> Rachel Myers. And, uh, of course, you can argue about services with her about uh, in person in, in Hamburg. So when is that so-called conf happening? What is the date? It is in June. Let me look it up real quick. I should have known. I should have had it ready. <laughs> I should have known as well. <laughs> it's it's also funny because their website has uh, has an intro that you can't uh, avoid if you just go to the website. Yes, I wanted to talk to Ola about this actually. <laughs> so I think it's, it's fine uh, the first time, but uh, maybe yeah. the second time. <laughs> so after watching the the mandatory intro is July twenty <laughs> third and twenty fourth. July 23rd and 24th. Fantastic. In Hamburg. Yeah. In Hamburg, exactly. Okay, so you can still get tickets, so everybody get on the tickets. Um, <laughs> I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, you can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio slash episodes slash 16. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit me up on Twitter at descriptivepod or use the feedback form on the website. And if you like the podcast, we'd be thrilled If you, would, if you would leave a rating on iTunes, that's the best way to help us right now. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me.